Welcome to the Monocle Banking Podcast, a series curated by Monocle Solutions, where we balance the books in the dynamic world of banking. As always, it's great to be here. Your host, Michael Avery, steering you through the ever-shifting story of finance in this series. And whether you're a banking professional, a financial enthusiast, or just someone who simply wants to stay informed about the world of finance, you're in the right place. Well, it's a great pleasure to welcome my guest this week, uh, who will be known to quite a few in South Africa. He is uh, a former senior executive of uh, Old Mutual, uh, chief executive of Old Mutual International and a director at Quilter. Uh, but going way back, he's the founder of Egg PLC, uh, which was one of the first uh, internet banks in the UK. Um, he worked at Prudential Banking and Yorkshire Building Society. Robert Michael Head, or Bob, as everyone knows him, is a, a British entrepreneur and business person who's really been at the head of several different companies uh, during his career. And uh, just a great pleasure, uh, Bob, to have you on the podcast. Hope you're keeping well. Thank you very much. I am indeed. I'm uh, here in the UK, just suffering with the cold weather <laughs> and wet. <laughs> How long have you been back in the UK for? What are you doing? Let's start there at the moment before we go all the way back into your early career. What, what are you currently involved in? People would be shocked to realise I am uh, this old, of course, but uh, I am 65 now. Uh, so the last full-time job I had was at South African Airways back in 2018. And since then, a bit of consultancy work and uh, a few non-executive uh, directors. And one in South Africa being Alex Forbes. Of course, um, you were CFO at SAA for a, for a stint there back in 2018 um, when the airline really started to clean out uh, a, a lot of the, the dead and rotten and, and corrupt wood. And now we see SAA announcing uh, new international routes and, and we hope on to a, a successful turnaround. Um, and what Warren Buffett say about turnarounds? They hardly ever turn. We'll, we'll come back to why. <laughs> I, I want to go back to your early career. You, you've had a very diverse professional journey from founding the first internet bank in the UK. You were also acting CFO at SARS to add to that uh, SAA CFO position. How has that experience contributed to your understanding of finance and leadership, particularly in navigating very complex organizational structures and very diverse stakeholder landscapes? So I suppose uh, my exciting, diverse career, the first point to actually make is that uh, it's been an accident. So uh, I haven't worked out what I'm going to do when I grow up yet. Uh, still trying to work on that. Um, so it's been sort of lurching from one thing to another. Um, generally speaking, I was given the problems to go and sort out. Um, so I used to do the jobs that other people didn't really want to do because they either involved risk like South African Airways, where you spent most of your time driving around in your car, looking in your car mirrors just to make sure you're going to live, or you know, the turnaround in Ed Bank back in the day, uh, back in 2004. So my whole career has been doing what other people don't want to actually do. And then it's really quite simple, really. You have a clear set of objectives, you build a team around it, you get the right sort of culture and the dynamics in that team. The key thing is that you don't overwork and, and set a number of hours per day you're going to do the business and uh, go out and do it. Um, so I don't think there is anything more complicated than just being yourself, <laughs> be authentic, uh, say thank you and listen a lot. It does sound like an awful oversimplification, given uh, the the size of some of the organisational turnarounds that you've been involved in. But I think you know part of your your character, as I know you, is is one of deep humility and authenticity, Bob. But we'll come to some of the the granular detail uh, in a short while. I want to go all the way back. You studied what uh, PPE at Oxford? What did you study at Oxford? 
Politics, philosophy, and economics. If you gave up one of the three, then you uh, got additional uh, subjects you could do. So there were 52 other subjects. So I have econometrics, East European politics, uh, US politics, and industrial relations. Well, that is uh, quite a mix. Uh, I'll ask you about what you think of what's going on in Ukraine and Russia in a short while. But I think what it demonstrates is that it's a classic degree, the the, the old Oxford PPE and, and the kind of world that it can open up in terms of going into finance. How did you first get involved in finance and whatever happened to Egg Bank? So I got into finance uh, mainly because I went to university. So I actually at school, I was very, very good at maths um, and uh, physics and those sort of subjects. So I wasn't used to writing essays. And so a whole feature of my career has been giving up what I'm good at and going to do something else. The reason I uh, ended up in finance was I used to be very left-wing. I'm only left-wing now, not very left-wing. And uh, I wanted to become a trade union researcher. But in the study of politics, I didn't like the dogma. So I decided that I wouldn't do that. And then my father, who panicked uh, because the 70s was a bad time economically, three million unemployed in the UK, and which is about 10%, which for, for us is very, very high, um, he sent me to a careers analyst. And uh, so they did loads and loads of tests and everything was contradictory. So if there was a graph with physics here and uh, music there, then what I was good at was physics and what I was bad at was music. And what I wanted to do would be nil on physics and mega on music. And everything was a mess. And he, this guy just said to me, go and train as an accountant and work it out later. So that's how I got into finance. Um, and then I've always tried to get away from finance. So I've accidentally been a CFO five times. And uh, the shortest period of time was six months. I managed to get rid of it. Seven months. And then there was a year. And then there was another two year. And then one, I even had to stay four years doing it, which is egg, which comes on to the second part of your question. What happened was uh, egg was developed by the Prudential of England, the original Prudential, as opposed to the Prudential of America that stole the name. Yeah. Um, I was summoned on the 10th of July, 1995, uh, by the chief executive of the PRU and said, Bob, I want you to go away and build a bank. So I said, well, I've, I've never done banking. I don't know anything about it. And uh, he said, oh, you'll work it out. So off we went. There was an original version of egg, which was called Prudential Banking, which was designed to capture... Uh, the, the man from the PRU, the sales force, was doing about two billion sterling of mortgages a year, but it was all going to competitors. And then we had all our maturities and payouts coming out of the life funds. That was all going to competitors. So the bank was originally set up to capture those flows and keep them away from competitors. And then basically we did really, really well on mortgages, but really, really badly on deposits which doesn't take a genius to realise that we were in the, then in trouble. So we went direct and they said, oh, that's interesting. You can do this rather well. Why don't you invent a new business? So we started to invent something that looked a bit like a bank in the UK called the First Direct. Uh, but then four of us went to America, saw the internet and thought, oh, this is coming down the track. Right. Um, and then we reorientated and it became the first internet bank in the UK. And now, what happened then? So the Prudential eventually sold it to Citigroup Citigroup got into trouble in the credit crunch of 2008, and then it was sold off in pieces. So uh, the savings and loans business and the egg brand went off to Yorkshire Building Society. The credit card business went off to Barclays, and the fund management business went off to Fidelity. So it's sort of literally, uh, we always steer clear of making jokes about the name egg, 
but it was smashed up. <laughs> Scrambled to some extent, uh, absolutely. It must have been a very interesting time given, I mean, you're going back now to the late 90s, early 2000s. We, we're talking about the, you know, the internet coming down the line, you're building this internet bank, and then you have the dot-com bubble bursting. Do you think the timing was, was ultimately what tripped Egg up? If you, if you look at its IPO, I think it was amidst the bursting of the internet stock bubble. Looking back, do, do you think that played some part in ultimately what happened to Egg? because it seemed to maybe be 20 years ahead of its time. So first of all, I left 2000 to go and do another internet bank called Smile. So I missed the IPO and, and all of that stuff. So I, I don't have the inside track on that. I think whenever you're the first mover, it's always difficult because you're always trying to create a market. And when the other sort of dot-coms started to arrive and we had to go to the Bank of England uh, periodically to all be... Uh, clubbed to death by the uh, the regulator and then you'd have a chat with the challenger brands and you say you know we're not your enemy the the enemy for all of us is actually the traditional business the the old incumbents they're the ones we have actually got to fight not fight amongst ourselves because we've got to expand our market rather than actually fight for a share in that market so i think the any first mover has a lot of persuading to do to actually get a market so there may be a gap in the market but is there a market in the gap that's the thing one's mm. always got to go and create and so yeah i think it's better to be a fast follower than it is to actually be a leader <laughs> yeah and i mean that could be applied to so many other industries we have just returned from the mining in Dava where there is some debate around green hydrogen technology and whether or not we should just wait a little bit and become fast followers rather than than first movers, given how much speed the technology is moving with. I want to come back to another interesting point you raised and cross-selling. And and that was something of a a key strategy for Egg to increase its revenue, as you said, to um, ensure that uh, certainly competitors didn't come and sell products to effectively what one would consider your own customers. Why do you think Egg struggled to effectively execute on, on this front? Because I think there's so many lessons for businesses currently who think sure. they've got an opportunity to cross-sell into a nice little captive um, market. And it's often when you look at the bank assurance model as well, and we look at what happened with Stanlib, a lot more difficult to execute. Why is that? So um, insurance men are different to bankers. <laughs> so, so I'm both an insurance man and a banker, so that makes me a split personality probably. Um, and that's why I'm so dysfunctional. I think part of the problem is that uh, in financial services, they talk about owning the customer. And as a customer, I don't want to be owned by anyone. So that sort of, if you've got that sort of attitude coming into it, then I think it starts stinking. At Smile, we got the number of products per customer to increase by 0.01 a week, uh, which is actually pretty good. Um, So it's something we used to monitor. And we used to think about it differently. So we used to actually think about cross-selling, but but it wouldn't be hard selling. And we used to think about the customer cross-buying. So do we lay out all the products that are potentially on offer, as well as the ones they've actually got, Um, So at least they think about us once in a blue moon. Do we actually give them, if you like, preferential offers if it is they do actually go and buy uh, the product? And the other thing is getting people to visit. So having the current account, we used to get four visits per week per customer. And so getting the, you know, it's a bit like it's no different to the old traditional retail. Yeah, Um, It's sort of like pick and pay. You just want to actually get the footfall in through the door. 
I've, I've often thought, Bob, it's a good point. When we look at the digital maturity of insurance versus banking, banking does have an inherent advantage in that, you know, it's far more transactional day to day. Whereas an insurer, well, I hopefully I'm not going to be claiming four times a week, you know, yeah. claiming maybe once a year, kind of at best, and with other insurance products, um, uh, well, the one time you claim you might not be there to actually see it through. You know, I mean, it's not one of those things that you do all the time. Yeah. Do, do, do you yeah. think that that's why insurance has been maybe a bit of a laggard when it comes to digitalization? So digitalization is actually just bringing ease to the customer. You know, you don't have to go down the branch. You don't have to stand in the queue, uh, blah, 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 blah. So, yeah. so if it's done well, it brings ease to the customer. Um, and the number of interactions you actually have on the non-banking side so it's not just insurance it's your management of investments and stuff like that different products will have a different degree of interaction some products um so if you think about share trading or mutual fund supermarkets they're going to have more transactions actually going particularly if people are actually playing the market more which i wouldn't recommend because obviously you just pay everything away in transaction costs but there can be on the on the life side of things uh, life investments, stuff that is more interesting. Now, obviously, if you're doing motor insurance or something like that, the only time you're interested in the insurer is if you've got a claim. Yeah. And when you're paying the premium, you're not bothered about uh, how good the customer service is. When you've got a claim, you are seriously concerned. So I lost a car in a flood, and uh, I won't be changing my uh, car insurer ever. <laughs> yeah, I think, uh, yeah, it's a point of need. It's, sort of, it's not the yeah. point of purchase that is a joy with insurance. Yeah, exa- well, exactly. And and also, again, why we don't work, fall out of bed and uh, uh, and want to go out and buy insurance. Uh, much like we, we don't really delight at the fact that we've got to go and do internet banking or, or most online transactions. I think there is still a lot to gain for aspiring entrepreneurs in the um, online banking or fintech sectors or insurtech to go and look for those customer paid points to, to delight them even further. And, and given the fact that uh, there's so much more data available now, there should be huge opportunity. What, what would your advice be, given the lessons learned from, from Egg's Rise and Fall and Smile's success to any aspiring entrepreneurs looking to venture into this uh, fintech world? Well, fintech at the moment is sort of interesting applications in, in, in limited areas. It's actually trying to get them all hooked up together. So you've got a, a coherent whole, I think, is where it is. I think you want to actually have a, a nice brand out there. Uh, I was one of the good and the great who failed to select Egg as a title uh, or name of the company. And the same goes with Smile as well. Actually, can I do a quick detour of why it's called Egg? Yeah, I would love to. I'd love to know who came up with that. So, so the good and the great reviewed a list of companies, a list of names, and uh, I think it was Right Angle, O2, and a bunch of other ones on there. And uh, so we selected three, and Egg wasn't one of them. We explicitly rejected Egg. And there was a chap called Clive Wing who um, was doing the admin for uh, customer research. And when those waiver research comes back, and there's four names there, Egg's there. So we give Clive a good beating for actually being so insubordinate to put the one he liked in. And when the next wave came back, Egg was there again. So he gave Clive another good beating. And he kept on sticking it back, sticking it back, and it eventually bubbled to the top. And uh, so the good and the great failed to get the name right. And that's why it was called Egg in the yeah. end of the day. So good old Clive. Uh, and and all those all those yeah. subs at new, in newspaper rooms were very, very pleased that you had chosen the name because the puns just write themselves after a bank named Absolutely. Egg breaks up and hits the so, wall. Um, yeah. Going back to your question, um, I, I do think brand is very important. So the Smile brand is, is, is an absolutely fantastic brand because Smile isn't just about laughter and that sort of stuff. It's also about contentment, peace of mind, those sort of things. 
I always think entertainment's quite good. So we used to do it quite low key in Smile, but we used to have voting functionality just after you logged in. Uh, sometimes serious topics, sometimes silly. So which decade is your favourite decade for football shorts? And the, remarkably, the 1970s, when they're you know, virtually very skimpy and, and left little to the imagination, was the decade that won. And the other thing was we could also do stuff because it was part of the co-op on the ethical side of things. So we um, in we had dirty green energy, which was pretty radical for the end of the 20th century. We used to get our power from fermenting sewage in, in Bournemouth. Um, which used to chuck off methane, which we then used to power. So so the best line I ever wrote in my life was the last line of the press release, which was, we'd like to thank the people of Bournemouth for all their efforts. <laughs> but we went out with a campaign, the bank powered by poo. So uh, you've got to differentiate on the brand. I mean, what's the difference really between APSA, Ned Bank, Standard and whatever that other one's called. So it's sort of like, you know, can we actually differentiate? Can we bring a personality to bear? Yeah. Why? I I thought uh, Bank Zero was such a a great name by Michael Jordan when he left uh, uh, the first round group as CEO of FNB to launch this digital competitor, this neobank, whatever they call it in the lingo, first principles. You know, you're not uh, bogged down by the legacy systems. But he was clearly not bogged down by the legacy thinking. He liked the name Zero, Zero Fees. You know, there are all kinds of plays in it. And uh, and one does get the sense that uh, the traditional banks, the incumbents, are still quite heavily weighed down by a lot of that uh, legacy thinking. What's, uh, What's your insight into the way traditional banks are responding to the uh, competitive forces that are being brought to bear by these new players? I'm sure they must be doing something. I'm not quite sure what it is. I'm not sure I can actually answer the question. I mean, it's almost a case of let's try and retain what we've actually got. Maybe that's uh, that's the way to go. You you, you kill this. It's sort of like you, you're going to cannibalize too much, too much value if you actually try and move too far. So there's there's a delicate, mm. I think, weighing the options. There's a, a point in time when you can turn more easily than than perhaps when you've got the the fatted calf and the golden goose and they're all in the same room with you together. Yeah, yeah, it's incentives often when you when you look at these things as well. I think on a on a on a more macro scale it's been interesting looking lately at what's been going on in the you know the banking industry in the US for example and following SVB and uh, a few others that hit the wall and just recently a couple of weeks ago we saw the banking index for the regional banks spike again there's been huge volatility and i know the stress testing has been conducted by the fed uh, and and they reckon things are fine, but they've also used some questionable assumptions about where interest rates are heading. And ultimately, mm. as you know, Bob, banking is a trust game. You know, it's it really is. It, it's a big house of cards. And if you don't trust the bank anymore, there's going to be a run on the bank. And in a digital world, the the runs are just amplified. They're easier to do. You don't have to go stand at the door. Do you think yeah. globally that banks? And I know there's a very broad question. This, but globally, that there is something of a crisis with the, the, the way the global banking system is structured and we're we just inviting more of these systemic crises upon ourselves? Well, they're a lot better capitalised than what they actually uh, uh, they were before. So that means there's some amount of track and some amount of time to actually fix things before you actually go and burn in hell. Yeah. Um, so you're absolutely right that the, uh, it's easier to move money around and all those things. So, yeah, it is a problem, but it's the same problem I think we've we've actually had since the first bank was actually invented. So I don't think there's anything new in 
what we're actually looking at. I think the regulators have done a reasonable job. The banks you were mentioning getting into trouble was actually really fundamentally mismanagement and not the spreading of risk. So um, yeah. it was uh, all the eggs in one basket, but there was only one egg and that's now in the Yorkshire Building Society. Um, <laughs> so it's putting all the eggs in one basket in, in, in those banks case. So I think, you know, there's, it was just mismanagement. And, and I mean, the regulator deserves a good kicking because they should have been able to see it, I would have thought. Well, yeah. And, and I think that's what many people are asking because it seems so obvious when, you, you know, if all of your eggs in long dated US treasuries and interest rates are rising, I think there wasn't much subtlety uh, about that. Uh, unlike the Yorkshire sense of humour, though, which I absolutely love. Um, let, let's just transition. Actually, just, just an interesting yeah. one on, on that. Um, if you go back in the, the, the days when Nedbank got into trouble in 2003, 2004, I wasn't actually working on Nedbank at that time, but having come out of banking, um, I kept hearing the phrase, it's a, it's a bear market for interest rates. And I, I kept going to Jim Sutcliffe and saying, you can't have a bear market for interest rates if you're properly matched. And it was, I mean, the Nedbank problem was in many ways what you're actually talking about in terms of just the mismatch on the interest side of things. So, you know, sort of, you know, what comes around goes around. Yeah, it's so, it's so interesting. We think these things are new. Um, and then you, you reach back in history and, and they are lessons to be learned. I, I'm very interested to hear about your, your very brief stint at, uh, at SAA. Um, as you say, you know, a troubled airline undergoing turnaround. You had to look over your shoulder in the rearview mirror driving home. It was a, mm-hmm. I, I mean, what, firstly, what drove you to take on such what seemed to be a poison chalice in such a high-pressure environment? How did you first approach balancing the financial stability with the need for uh, innovation and growth, given all of these factors? Sure. So actually, I've twice been a civil servant in my life. Once was uh, South African Airways and the other one was uh, the South African Revenue Authority uh, or SARS. So uh, if you're going to start as a civil servant, do it late in life and do it as far away from home as possible. (laughs) But South African Airways was absolutely a delight to actually work at. It's full of some bad people, not very full. um, So and, and certainly less full than what it was before. And it's full of some seriously good people. I mean, really, really good people that were a joy to actually work with. A lot of what I was trying to do was actually just trying to get enough cash to pay salaries (laughs) and and other things and fuel in foreign places because otherwise your planes get stranded and all the rest of it. So it's putting together the funding program. The thing is, is there's a six-point plan I developed where each of the six points wipes out about a third of the loss, which uh, six thirds is uh is two so that means you'd actually be making money so you know you can do the the analysis quite simply yourself but if it was properly capitalized because at the moment it's financed by bank debt or it was then financed by bank debt if it's properly capitalized then it wipes out um a third of the the debt if if uh, maintenance was just at the world average as opposed to where it is got back to the average and it should be lower really for South Africa, then that wipes out a third of the, the loss. So there was a bunch of programs that we were working down towards, as it were, um, but an awful lot of it was actually just trying to survive the here and now and getting things um, sorted. Well, why so, did you end up leaving? Why was it such a brief stint? So uh, work permit. So um, oh. I had a work permit for six months. It's appropriate as a South African that uh, does that job rather than me. I was only brought in as a stand-in. I mean, I've got no air. My my only airline experience is sitting in the seat, uh, uh, but not in front of the aeroplane. So um, I'm not the right person to do it. So there were things to do to sort out procurement. 
When you get a, a, a chit to sign that you actually want to ha- a pay a billion rand away on fuel, it's quite interesting. I spent two days uh, saying, okay, how do I know this number's right? You don't. Okay. <laughs> well, I'm not going to sign it until you show me why it is right. So I spent two days with the fuel people so I, so I knew the numbers were right. So a lot of it was around quite, again, basic stuff. Trying to, uh, you know, a signature means something. So, so go and do the work to actually satisfy yourself that it's appropriate to actually do it. Yeah. Why did I do it? Which is the other thing you actually asked. So I keep boomeranging back accidentally to South Africa. It's not uh, ever been a plan. Although I'm sure Previn Gordon would think I'm a very cheeky chappy and overall a bad person. I've twice actually ended up effectively working for him. Uh, South African Airways one time and he was finance minister when I went to SARS. Yeah. So he probably still hates me. But, you know. <laughs> Must be something to do with South Africa's fine wine and weather. Uh, Bob, uh, let's talk about SARS a little bit and the, the kind of work that you undertook while Pravin Gordon was finance minister at SARS. It was still highly regarded and that, that was before the Tom Moyani years, was it? Uh, well, no, I included it. So um, ah. Open Magashula was the uh, ah. my first boss. Um, I was called special advisor, not senior advisor. I was special. <laughs> and basically odd job, man. Uh, that's what I'm used to. So uh, had a lot of fun doing uh, the various odd jobs. Opa uh, then left, and then I had Ivan Pillay, who is the guy, depending on your point of view, if you're chasing down SARS and you want to actually kill it, then Ivan Pillay is the evil person who uh, did all the subterfuge with the uh, secret unit and uh, and all that sort of stuff. Absolutely nothing. He was just... Uh, I've said before, I would um, trust Ivan with my wallet, uh, my daughter, uh, anything of uh, value to me. Um, He's an absolutely top banana person and he was in charge of the criminal uh, investigation. So uh, hence he was... Um, was targeted down the difficult end yeah yeah so and and then uh tom moyani was brought in and he was my last boss uh at that stage i was uh the acting cfo um because the cfo had resigned and after a while i realized that things weren't appropriate so i resigned after three and a half years at sars with my last boss being tom moyani now, clearly, that didn't mean you turned your back on South Africa because then you came back to um, have that brief stint with South African Airways and uh, you, you've been back in the UK for some... And, and Alex Forbes, yes. And uh, you're living in the UK, but obviously with an affinity for South Africa. Given that view, that lens through which you can view South Africa as someone who's worked here, uh, has someone who can apply a, a foreign lens as well, what do you make of South Africa's international image in the world at the moment? And there are so many forces at play here. Our decision to uh, take Israel to the International Court of Justice on the one hand, our uh, continued alignment with BRICS and BRICS Plus and China and Russia in particular, and, and then also uh, trying to remain relevant to the West through a Goa and through the various other export deals that we have for our agriculture to the EU. Internally, it feels like our foreign policy is very muddled and we're increasingly being viewed with suspicion in the world. Uh, is, is that the case? Does that accord with uh, South Africa's uh, foreign policy position in the UK? So um, Gaza, I think government policy would be you, you did the wrong thing. The public opinion here would say you did the right thing. And I'd, I'd, I'd be in the, uh, well, good for you, South Africa, for actually going on uh, Gaza. So um, you, you, you get a, 
a tick and a cross on that one. It is very difficult for us to understand why anyone would go on military maneuvers with Russia and Chinese. The only thing I can see of any benefit uh, is that probably to communicate with each other, they have to speak English, which would make me laugh if that was actually the case. <laughs> Um, there would be some sort of irony there. But uh, you might well be backing um, the eventual winners, but I don't think I don't think uh, there were people I would necessarily want to actually be in bed with. So I think that one confuses us a bit, but it doesn't get much coverage. So you're quite lucky it doesn't get much coverage. It's been mentioned, but it doesn't get much coverage. Yeah. Uh, there is still Nelson Mandela that uh, we all know and love. Um, we kind of lost... Uh, South Africa uh, profile. So if I go back to pre-94, Soweto, if, if you are someone of my generation, say three places in South Africa, they'll go Cape Town, Johannesburg, Soweto. Yeah. Um, because Soweto was on our television every night. And that great song, Free Nelson Mandela, which I do recommend, this is, of course, written by an Englishman, uh, Jerry Dammers of the specials. Um, there is still a lot of goodwill towards South Africa. Obviously, things like rugby uh, as the one-point team, uh, well done on all the one-point wins, including the England one. And the you know we, the, we've got so much in common, sort of with yeah. our rugby, yeah. Um, yeah. soft power, soccer, yeah, the old days, yeah, cricket, yeah. obviously. So, so there's a lot of there's a lot of heritage. Um, I think the thing that would surprise people if I said to people, there's over thirty percent unemployment and all that wealth in South Africa. Can you believe it? They go. Is that so? They, yeah. they, I mean, they wouldn't believe it. It's sort of like when we get to 10% unemployment, we're screaming. Um, and I think, so I don't think there is a full appreciation of what's quite going on in South Africa. And, and in many ways, that could actually be good for you. Yeah, well, the, the reform narrative is bubbling away under the surface to hopefully do away with um, you know much of the corruption, dead and rotten and bad people that uh, eventually uh, got their hands on SARS and that would pushed out, thankfully, and, and at SAA. And so given that there is some Madiba magic out there, as you say, that um, could well work in our favor. We'll have to uh, let time be the judge on that one. Bob Head, thank you very much. Uh, it's been a great pleasure having you on the podcast, sharing your insights and expertise on a broad range of topics through banking and uh, aviation and even uh, the geopolitics of where South Africa finds itself in the world today. Take care. And a dash of madness as well. Thank and you a, very much. As any good Yorkshireman would. That's uh, a wrap uh, for this week's episode of the Monocle Banking Podcast. Uh, before we go, I'd just like to extend uh, our gratitude to you, our growing audience, for tuning in. Remember, you can find us on all good podcast platforms. Reach out to me on Twitter or email the team at Monocle. It's from me, Michael Avery. Take care.